we're bringing up a generation of kids who are affected by gun violence and they don't have to have been the victim of or a survivor of gun violence directly to be traumatized. You know, the, the ripple effects of gun violence have affected oh, this whole generation. You know, the, the kids who survived Sandy Hook and, and other shootings and kids who survived domestic violence shootings or suicides, you know, they have friends and schoolmates and they live in different communities and they're on the bus. And those experiences are being communicated out into the everyday world. And, and those kids don't have the tools necessarily to cope with that. And it's very, I think that's the thing that people need to understand. You can't insulate yourself from it. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, good morning. My name is Marianne Jacob. I am a fellow for Every Town for Gun Safety, which is in a part of Moms Demand Action. Welcome to Sylvia and me. Marianne, thank you so much for taking time uh, to be with me here today and for our listeners. Um, we, 10 years ago, we had what we thought was the most unbelievable incident that took place. There was a school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook Elementary School, 26-year-old elementary children, babies were killed um, in addition to six educators. You were at the school at that time, you were a library clerk. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I bring this up mm -hmm. is because of what happened two weeks ago in Texas at Robb Elementary School. Can you tell us um, what happened 10 years ago and how, what we're going through right now, what just happened, uh, has you reliving what happened back in 2012? Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, my personal experience was that I was in the library. Um, the day was just getting started. It was a Friday morning and the librarian um, was just welcoming her first class of the day and getting them settled in and telling them what their lesson was going to be. And I started to hear some strange noises that I think were coming from over the intercom. Um, and I stopped and listened for a minute and I thought, what's going on? Like, does it, the office have their intercom on? Because in the office um, on Fridays and in the classrooms, they used to do something called Dance Party Friday, where they'd celebrate the end of the coming week. And I thought maybe they're the gals in the office are doing that and they've accidentally hit the intercom. So I walk over from my desk to the telephone, call the office and, and one of the school secretaries from under her desk picks up the phone and says, there's a shooter in the building. And I don't think I even responded, which is, you know, I look back on it and think she was in such terrible danger. And I think I just hung up the phone. Um, I yelled to Yvonne, who was over in the teaching area, lockdown. And I uh, ran across the hallway to the two classrooms directly across from us. I yelled lockdown and slammed their doors shut. When I came back in, Yvonne was already getting the kids lined up in the, you know, quote, usual spot where we practice lockdown drills along the wall, but that uh, was along the hallway. And um, she was going outside to lock our doors, big library, multiple doors, 
all had to be locked from the outside, couldn't be locked from the inside. So we settle in. And at that point, <clears throat> we can clearly hear gunshots, boom, 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 like what went on for what felt like forever. We know in retrospect, it was less than five minutes. Um, and I'm pointing that out, knowing that the kids in Uvalde listened to something like that for 78 minutes and, and thinking about how horrific that must have been for them. Um, during the first couple of minutes, um, I think uh, it was a um, the barrel of a long gun came around the corner of one of the walls of the library, followed very quickly by a policeman's face. There was a, you know, a split second where we thought that gun belonged to the shooter. The policeman sticks his head around. He says something to us. We say something back. I, I really don't remember what it was, but it was <clears throat> it clearly was saying to us, be careful and and stay quiet. Um, so when he went back outside, that signaled to us that the door was not locked, that he had entered and that we thought was locked. So we didn't feel safe. So Yvonne and, and me and the other adults uh, instructed the kids to crawl across the floor on our hands and knees because there's windows in our doors and we had to go by a door into a closet where we had school supplies and the servers for the computers. And we closed that door and pushed a file cabinet in front of us. Now. You know, I know in retrospect that if the policeman was in the building, the shooting was over, but that didn't feel like that in the moment. And we still felt very much in danger. And of course, we had no idea what was going on. So we stayed there for, I think, more than an hour um, before the police came and rescued us. We learned after the fact that um, when they, the police kind of got together and said, I think we think we've cleared the building. What did we do room by room? They said there was nobody in the library. Um, but it turns out our police chief saw us crawling across the floor because he was in the building at the window of the door and he watched that happen. And he said, oh no, I know there's people in the library. I saw them crawling across the floor. So they sent, uh, the policeman back to us. We get a knock on the door. We make them put their badge underneath the door. <clears throat> and, um, when we knew it was them, we pushed the file cabinet out of the way. I looked out the door and what I saw in the room out, right outside was, a room full of men in, you know, tactical gear that was not normal. Um, so that was really the first, like, hard evidence that something really bad was happening, other than like us not not really knowing. And I remember thinking that I had to kind of compose myself before I turned around to the group. And the police told us, you know, each adult was going to take the hands, a kid in each hand, and we were going to be escorted down the hallway, which we did at a run. And the hallway was lined with other policemen in tactical gear. So that still felt very much like we were in danger. We get outside to the scene that <clears throat> that you're familiar with on TV, where there were you know helicopters and cars and parents and just complete bedlam. And there's a firehouse adjacent to where our building was, right uh, down the driveway. So we go to that parking lot and I know for me, the kids just sort of melted away. I'm, I, I hope I handed them off to somebody, but I honestly don't really remember what happened. And the um, first selectman, who's like the mayor of our town, stopped me. She and I knew each other. And I said to her, what the hell just happened? And she said, it's the worst thing this country's ever seen, worse than Columbine. And I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, it's all it was all just so unreal. Even after her saying that, like, what does that mean? Um, so we go into the firehouse, we start lining kids up by classroom. We're trying to organize people so they can find their parents and we can sign them out and we kind of know who got who. And 
it became evident very quickly that two entire classrooms were missing. Um, we didn't know then that some had run, <clears throat> um, but we knew that, you know, they, they were not there. So, you know, the afternoon unfolded, the day unfolded. We were there for many hours. Um, my kids were in the high school watching it unfold on TV. I have two boys who were um, sophomores and seniors. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, they left school after their lockdown was over and went home. And my family, I have siblings in the area, had the foresight to be at my house to greet my kids when they got there. So they didn't come home to an empty house. And we weren't allowed to leave till two or three in the afternoon because we all had to be interviewed. You know, there was a whole, and there was just a lot going on. Um, and when we finally were allowed to leave, somebody had to pick us up because all of our cars and personal stuff was still in the building. You know, no coat, no phone, no keys, nothing. Um, while the shooting was going on, um, my kids were texting me, mom, mom, are you okay? But my phone was on my desk and I was hiding in the closet. So they didn't get an answer and know I was okay for a couple hours, um, which I'm sure was really hard for them too. Um, and when I got home, I, I remember doing the same sort of thing I did in the closet, which was put my hand on the door of my front door and thinking, okay, you're about to walk in your house and see your kids. You have to like go into mom mode, right? Like we all know what that's like where women in particular, I think, um, spend a lot of their time thinking about what they need to do for other people in their lives. And, you know, that was, you know two occasions right in the midst of the trauma happening that I can remember specifically like putting aside how I was feeling to deal with how other people were feeling. And that's was very emblematic about how things unfolded over time. Um, to say I'm a little bit horrified and speechless um, goes beyond anything else because when we heard about what happened in Sandy Hook and you've lived through it. Did you think things were going to change as far as gun control? Did you, did you in your head um, think that maybe this horrific incident, which was unfathomable would change people, how they look at gun control, gun safety. And yet 10 years later, we have something that just by numbers misses the amount of people killed in an elementary mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it was an evolution, to be honest with you. I don't think pre um, the shooting, I really had any idea what the state of the gun law legislation was in the country or understood any of that. And so, you know, after, you know, after 26 funerals and going back to school and, and all the things that started unfolding after it, I think it became, you know, we started learning more about Wow, there used to be an assault weapons ban and it expired. And um, this kid owned these guns legally because his mother bought them for him. And and even though he had clear mental health problems, that was somehow okay. And and the conspiracy theory stuff coming in and um and the 
gun lobby coming in. You know, it, 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 what was interesting about it for me on a personal level is I'm married to a guy who grew up in the Midwest, who's been hunting since he was a boy. Um, he taught our boys how to hunt and they do sports shooting, like skeet shooting and stuff like that. There's guns in our home under lock and key. Um, our boys were required to take a gun safety course when they came of age and my husband attended it with them. So they did it together each time. And so that whole other discussion about, you know, I should be allowed to own whatever I want. And if I want to have a million guns, I can, and I should have to lock them up. That was such a revelation because everyone in the, my life that I knew who were gun users were, they believed in, uh, safe storage. They believed in background checks. They had no problem with that. They felt that gun ownership came with grave responsibility. So, so there was first that sort of new learning, right? That that's not what the world was like. And then the fact that once we started advocating and, and parents of children who died were advocating, and we thought we had an agreement on the background checks in particular, and it didn't happen, that was pretty shocking. You know, and, and I think I think it was a sobering for the movement um, of which there are now millions and millions of people to say that it's not enough. It clearly wasn't enough then for 26 year olds and six educators to die to change this entrenched guns everywhere notion. So yeah, I think it was it was shocking. You know, you mentioned the fact that your husband hunts, he taught your children, your boys, gun safety, how to use a gun. And, you know, people who are who, who use them appropriately, believe in safety. Um, but where we've gone all of a sudden, starting 10 years ago, um, who would have thought that, that, that someone could actually go in and buy an assault rifle and all these magazines legally? For what purpose? Moms Demand Action was started by a woman, Shannon Watts, the day after Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. And it was started by her posting something on Facebook. And then all of these moms replying to her. And as you mentioned, there were two times that you had to, on that day, kind of put yourself into the woman nurturing mode, whether you felt like it or not, whether the most horrific thoughts were going through your mind, you had a, almost like an actor turn around and go into the role that we're brought up to be. Mm -hmm. Tell me about mom's demand action. How did you get involved in it? And where is it going? So, you know, that's an interesting story. When, when we um, returned to school after in January, you know, this stuff was kind of swirling all around us. And <clears throat> most of us had to focus again on 
being present for the kids who survived, right? Welcome them back to school in a strange town and strange classrooms to find their backpacks that they hadn't seen since the day of the shooting that got left in their classrooms. And, you know, I can remember that first day us standing in the hallways, telling the kids where to go and welcome them and putting a smile on our face. And, you know, in the, in the months that followed that and how difficult they were. Um, it wasn't until probably almost 18 months later for me personally, that the shooting in Isla Vista, California happened. And um, <clears throat> I saw a man on TV whose name is Richard Martinez talk about how his son had been gunned down. And he uttered the phrase, you know, not one more. Um, and that finally motiv motivated me to do something like it sort of woke me up out of my, my recovery stupor, I think. And I went to another woman in our school and I said, who I, who I had a feeling felt similarly and she agreed <clears throat> she did. And um, um, the, the school allowed us to reach out to the other staff members and ask them if they wanted to meet about. And um, we set up a meeting in a local restaurant and about 30 or 30 or more teachers showed up and staff members that we, that were survivors with us who, who felt similarly. So we sort of started an informal group that we called Sandy Hook Educators for Gun Sense. Um, and I don't know if I even knew about Moms Demand Action at that point, but um, we invited Erica Lafferty, whose mom, Dawn, was our principal, to join us. And she was already involved. She was very involved, was working with moms in every town. So she sort of, she came and talked to us. We had a you know a subsequent meeting. She came and talked to us about ways we can involve and what we can do. And we weren't interested really in kind of starting our own thing. We were interested in like figuring out how to get involved. So that became that started our relationship with moms um, and and learning about them. And you know the 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 grassroots organization that started that day has grown to millions of people in the last ten years. And and the women and men involved in it have done amazing work on local and state levels, um, state after state after state. I mean, they're, it, the, the, they've made tremendous progress um, and, and have done a ton of wins. I think the problem that we as Americans sort of see is that because we haven't made progress on a national level, it makes us feel like nothing has happened, which isn't really true. Um, but it's important that we keep pushing because until something happens on a national level, we still have such great exposure from a safety, a public safety standpoint. Yes, we do. And one of the, um, <clears throat> one of the organizations that Moms Demand Action is a part of is Every Town for Gun Safety, which last year launched Demand a Seat. Can you tell us about demand a seat? Because you're saying we need to do something on a federal level, and we do. Um, yet we we need to take care of if it, you know as we're working on a on a federal level, we need our local lawmakers and representatives to be the ones helping us push for this also, and demand a seat is putting some of those people in there. Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's a great advocacy 
arm. You know, I, you know, when we first started, we started by saying to, to our volunteers, you need to hold your, um, your legislators accountable, you know, and it was informal, you know, meetings with them. And then it grew to grading um, candidates the same way the NRA gives ratings to candidates. We gave gun sense ratings to candidates and we endorsed candidates. And then, and then it evolved into this, well, why aren't we doing this ourselves? Because we're the people who care. We have this incredible sea of talent, you know, women of all sizes and colors and shapes and backgrounds and talents that are perfectly suitable. And, and, and let's not just throw our endorsement behind people, but let's use people in our own network that we know this is their core issue and promote them. So I think it's been such a cool kind of evolution as we've grown as an organization um, into where we are today, this demand to see you know, process. I, I think it's exciting. And I think we've, you know, we've had some great wins. I mean, Lucy McBath is, is a great example of someone who is a survivor, you know, whose son was gunned down and um, has gone on to be an incredible leader um, at the federal level. And, and it's just a sampling of women and men that I think we're, we're going to continue to see run for office because they've had enough. Um, I, I, one other thought, I just want to say, you know, we talk a lot about holding our elected officials accountable. Um, but for the majority of Americans, that's just talk. And that's, in my opinion, the root of the problem, because until our elected leaders are, are truly held accountable by the majority of their constituents, which is our job, every person listening here's job, they're not going to act. So to blame your uh, elected officials for not doing anything when all you do is post how sad you are on Facebook or on Twitter, you're part of the problem. Um, and I really want everyone to hear that really clearly because we ha we have to demand action. We have to be the ones who are driving change because the gun lobby has a lot of money um, and a lot of influence and they're very good at what they do. Um, and if we are not as good or better, we are not going to win this fight. And it and it and and sometimes when we support an effort, we get caught in this echo chamber of people who feel like we do, and we're just talking to ourselves and we're not really making a difference to in the places we need to. So you know, it requires us all to probably step out of our comfort zones and find ways we can help. And believe me, there's a million different things you can do to help. Um, and do something, anything. And it's a question of stepping out of comfort zones because there's, yeah. been, there's been enough talk. There's been right. so much talk and yet it keeps happening. Right. And, and, you know, no one's trying to take away anyone's rights. It's not political. It's a public safety issue. Our children yeah. are being gunned down, literally. They're growing up in an environment where school safety lockdown drills should not be the norm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my children are in their 30s, so they missed that window. School lockdown drills weren't, weren't the thing then. I think about my grandson, who's only seven months old, and I'm going, oh, my word, it's going to be part of his 
life experience unless we do something now. Um, well, yeah, and I, I think, you know, until we treat it as the pervasive public health issue that it is, and, and we continue to allow the people who are on ideological opposite ends of the spectrum to dictate the conversation, I think it's going to be tough to get out of it. I mean, we know that the majority of Americans, in what I call the radical middle, right? Most of us live in the radical middle where we believe in gun safety. And that includes gun owners, right? Yes. And we believe in all this stuff, but but we're allowing these fringe elements to, to drive the conversation um, in a way that is disheartening, I think, for a lot of people, but that's because we're not speaking up enough, right? Like we know, um, you know, we know gun laws work. The facts are indisputable in states that have strong gun laws, it works. And, and the, you know, when you talk about your children and your grandson, the thing that people forget, you know, it, I think it, one of the things that amazed me, continued to amaze me after Sandy Hook is when people would have um, tragedies in their communities. And it didn't have to be a mass shooting. It could be, you know, an everyday form of gun violence or suicide or something else. People's reaction was always, I can't believe that happened here. Um, and that was shocking to me because if it can happen in tiny little Sandy Hook, Connecticut, it could happen anywhere. So that was the, you know, that, that was my, and, and, and I think people who continue to think it can't happen here kind of have their heads in the sand because it's a really, it's a tough thing to put your head around. It's a tough thing to live with. And it's easier to kind of put it aside and, and not focus on it than deal with it. Um, but what that means is that we're bringing up a generation of kids who are affected by gun violence and they don't have to have been the victim of, or a survivor of gun violence directly to be traumatized. You know, the, the ripple effects of gun violence have affected oh, this whole generation you know, the, the kids who survived Sandy Hook and, and other shootings and kids who survived domestic violence shootings or suicides, you know, they have friends and schoolmates and they live in different communities and they're on the bus. And those experiences are being communicated out into the everyday world. And, and those kids don't have the tools necessarily to cope with that. And it's very I think that's the thing that people need to understand. You can't insulate yourself from it. No, you can't. And the thing is, we don't have, the children don't have the tools. And, and the adults, uh, the adults who have been affected and the adults around don't have the tools. Mental health in this country is not something that we really, um, we are starting to talk about it more, but it's still not available the way it should be. So you have a, a, a community, a generation of young people who have been affected by this, whether personally, or as you say, you know, peripherally, and you have all the adults who don't know how to cope with it or have gone through this. How, how do you go from one day to the next? Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting point, Sylvia, because I think, uh, well, unfortunately, we're getting better at understanding how to respond to these incidents. Um, one of the takeaways from Sandy Hook, and I know it's happened repeatedly since then, is, you know, we've we've figured out, I think, that the kids who are the, the families who lost loved ones and the children who were directly involved in, 
impacted by the gun violence. I think we're figuring out how to come in and, and make sure they're getting the help they need. But, you know, in a school like ours, which had hundreds of kids in it, every one of those kids heard that those gunshots had friends who, who had died. Every one of those adults, the same thing. And this concept that you mustn't be as traumatized because you were in the back hallway, <laughs> um, which is really is, is human nature. In fact, my own children, I remember them coming home from the high school the week after they went back to school and kind of being angry that the girls are all crying because, you know, these are boys. So take it, you know, it, it, with the grain of salt, the girls are all crying because of what happened and, and they don't even have anybody in the school. I'm like, you know what? That doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and even they needed, you know, some education on, on how trauma is so far reaching. But, you know, someone asked me about a week ago, what would I tell the people of Uvalde? And what I would tell the people of Uvalde and everybody else is, we can't forget about the adult survivors. And, and, and among those, I, I would count the survivors in the building, the staff and Definitely. the teachers, as well as the parents of the children who survived. If we don't give those adults the tools to deal with what they're going through and how to manage what their children and students are going through, it's, it's, it, it, it's not helpful. Right. And we didn't do a good job of that in Sandy Hook. And, and ironically, people around us assumed we were being taken care of because we were at, you know, like ground zero, but we weren't. It was months before someone even said to me, how are you doing? Um, a lot of people would say, what do you need? As if you knew what you needed when you went through something like that. Um, and, and we were mostly left to our own devices to find help, some successfully, some not. So, you know, not the, the pediatricians and the general practitioners and the mental health people that exist in a community like that, which is not going to be enough to deal with hundreds of people, all have to start preparing for how to increase those services in a way that can serve the community best. You know, no, you know, there, Sandy Hook was a community of, I want to say about 28,000 when it happened. And, you know, we had a small mental health kind of place that has grown exponentially since then. But, you know, at the time they were overwhelmed with what they needed to do. It just didn't exist. And, you know, if you, if you go to your regular doctor and you say, man, I think I'm having heart palpitations, you know, the doctor's like, here is the list of all the great heart doctors that I recommend you go to go see this one. He's a great guy. If you go to the doctor, and by the way, this happened to me and say, I'm still suffering. I, I, I sob in the shower every day. The doctor says, well, you need to find some help. <laughs> and you and walk out of there thinking, I, I knew that part. I knew I needed to find where, some help. Where is the help? Where, where really am I supposed to, to get it? Right. We're telling the people who need the help the most to go figure it out. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a you know the tragedy after the tragedy that happens that these people aren't aren't getting the help that they need right away, which really helps healing and helps them move on. You, know, you never it never leaves you. It's a part of who you are, but it doesn't define you in the same way it did when it first happened. If you're fortunate enough to survive, I mean, I can't speak for the families who lost one. I can't imagine that that journey is any easier ten years later than it was before. But I I can't. I, you know, I'm lucky enough not to be in that position. And really, that's all it is, is luck. Marianne, um, for people who are saying to themselves, things have to change, what 
can I do? Where would you direct them right now? Uh, I, the first thing I would say to people is, you know, you can join this grassroots movement at Moms Demand Action by texting ACT, A-C-T, to the number 64433. Uh, Another volunteer who's local to where you live will get in touch with you, um, hear what you want to say, and give you some options about how to help. And depending on what state you're in, and what's going on with those groups there, there's lots of different options. You can um, go to rallies, you can write letters, you can call legislators, you can donate money, you can um, speak at public events like I do. You can, you know, there's, there's generally something for everybody. Um, and, and, you know, we talked a little bit about getting out of your comfort zone, but honestly, I think there's probably something for everybody to do, but they've got to be willing to make the effort and, and carve out the time to do that. That's really the issue is, giving the time and making it a priority in your life. Marianne, I thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Um, Sylvia, for having me. And I don't know what else to say because unless we do something, it's going to happen again. Yep. Agreed. And we got to fight. And, and And you know what? Even if we do do something, you know, I expect our Uh, our leaders are to take impactful action, but no matter what that action is, we need to keep fighting for everything we think is the right thing to do. So the, you know, this is, we're in it for the long haul. This isn't a short term. So, you know, join us. Marianne, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Sylvia. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.